Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This is the Restoring the Faith Media live stream event. Thank you so much for joining us. Today is the 3rd of September. It's 4 o'clock Central Standard Time. And today we're going to be talking about distributism. Is it or is it not a Catholic form of economics? I'm so glad that you've been able to join us for this. Um, my understanding is that we have a large crowd today, so we're going to try to keep strictly to our time limits. I will first introduce today's debaters, and then I will go over the uh, format and rules for today's debate. John Madai is an adjunct instructor in theology at the University of Dallas, where he teaches a course on Catholic social teaching, primarily to business students. But he did not come to academia through the normal route. However... He has 440, not 400, 400 years, yes, 40 years experience in the business world, in the computer, telecommunications, and real estate uh, industries. He is an Army veteran, and uh, he's done two tours of duty in combat in Vietnam. He has served five terms of, of elected office as a city councilman, including a term as mayor pro tempt of the city of Irving, Texas, outside of Dallas, Fort Worth. He is the author of two books, The Vocation of Business, Social Justice in the Marketplace, and Towards a Truly Free Market, A Distributist Perspective. He has another book coming out next month, co-authored with Thomas Stork. He has been married for 48 years, he notes, to the same woman, and is the father of five and the grandfather of three. 
I understand many of uh, John's students at UD are watching us right now. I hope you won't be scandalized that in the spirit of American egalitarianism, we are using first names this afternoon. Jeff Kassman is the co-founder and CEO of Kassman Family, Inc. With 25 years' experience, he has guided the organization through aggressive growth, averaging more than 9% per year despite perpetual sleep deprivation. As patriarch, he has primary responsibility for the spiritual and secular formation of 15 direct reports. He serves as the director of cognitive and emotional development for all offspring, with a specialty in remedial behavior training for adolescents. Since 1995, he has also served as senior strategist and primary disciplinarian for toddlers and teenagers alike and has developed particular experience as a negotiator for all domestic toddler terror incidents. I believe that's, uh, that's, that's a very particular training. He serves as the organization's resource and supply chain management board as well as the labor board and waste management board. He also serves as an advisory capacity to the organization's COO, CFO for tactical operations, emergency response, domestic planning. In his spare time, Jeff enjoys recalling how he used to play golf uh, before the turn of the century and thinking of innovative new and, new and innovative dad jokes. And like all of us, he enjoys sleeping. Um, there are almost 100 of you joining us live. Thank you so much for joining this is going to be a very interesting discussion. I want to get right into it. So the format for today, um, for those who don't know, John obviously will be defending or, pro or promoting the idea of distributism as a Catholic form of economics. I'm very much looking forward to learning more about distributism myself. And uh, uh, the one thing that I've asked John to do is to define the quid s. What is it? Because so many people tell us that they're distributists, but we don't really know what that means. So we have to start with, uh, with John so that he can define what distributism is. He's going to go for 10 minutes. At the end of that, Jeff is going to ask him, uh, cross-examine him and ask him clarifying questions. I will also be able to ask him questions that you in the audience here submit on the Facebook page live. So this will be fully interactive. And if you have questions, concerns, comments, funnel them into the chat, and I will be monitoring that. After the Q&A period, Jeff will then respond in turn for 10 minutes uh, and, and provide his counter thesis to the distributist argument. After that point, there will be another Q&A, and then there will be five-minute periods of response, counter-response, and rebuttal uh, until everybody gets exhausted or until we reach about an hour and a half. Gentlemen, thank you so much for allowing Restoring the Faith to host this event. If you would, please, if you're watching right now, give the page a like. Give this video a like. That way, the Russian bots who control Facebook will present this video and this page to more people. And this incredible message of Catholic economics will get out to the masses. Without further ado, I would like to introduce John. And John, you can uh, unmute your mic, and we will hear from you for the next 10 minutes, sir. Michael, thank you very much, and thank you to Restoring the Faith for uh, sponsoring this. I think the best way to introduce distributism is with a story. Back when I was in college in the early 1970s, some buddies and I worked part-time for Rhodes Office Supply, Dusty Rhodes Proprietor. Now, Dusty was a redneck. Indeed, necks didn't come much redder than Dusty's. And we were know-it-all college boys, so we had a lot of fun at Dusty's expense. 
But what we didn't realize, but should have, is that Dusty was a free man, and that men like him were the foundation of the community. Of course, he was politically free, as I hope we all are, but he was something else. He was economically free, as we all should be. Dusty made his living providing useful goods to his neighbors and his community, and he was responsible to no one but his family and his customers. And in doing so, he did much more. He took ads in the local paper so that, would have ha so that it would have an economic base. He supported the high school marching band. He raised money for the local hospital, back when the hospital was still local and not a part of a corporate collective. And he could always be counted on for whatever civic duty was necessary in the moment. And his business implied it, um, provided employment for smart-ass college boys, boys who looked down on him when they should have been looking up to him. Alas, Dusty's grandchildren do not have the same opportunities that Dusty did, nor the same economic freedom. The best they can hope for is to be a store manager at Staples or to become a cubicle rat at Office Max headquarters if they are willing to relocate. Office supplies were a service that used to be provided by tens of thousands of local businessmen like Dusty, Dusty but who have, who have now, now all been displaced, displaced by, by corporate behemoths that have, that have cooperated, cooperated to become, become a cartel. cartel. And not, and not only, only have, have their grandchildren been deprived of the opportunity for economic freedom, freedom but their, but their communities, communities have been, have been deprived, deprived of their civic, civic services. services. For business, For business is no, no longer something, something that arises from, from the community, but arises arise, arise arise from, from the outside, from, from different, different and, and distant and, and different corporate, corporate conglomerates, bureaucrats that have no interest in and provide no support for the local community. The rich network of community life suffers and is degraded because it lacks the pool of free men and free women who made it function. Dusty could not let his prices rise, rise too much, too much above, above what his competitors were charging, and he had, and he to, had to be sensitive, sensitive to, his to his customers' needs and, needs and desires. desires. But the, but the corporate collectives can, can set, set prices, prices where they want, want and offer, offer what, what they, they will. John, apologies and for interjecting. Can you just confirm that you have your Facebook uh, window closed? I think a couple people are hearing an echo. I, I, it is, it closed. is closed. Okay. Yes. Yes. All right. Uh, Echo okay. is fixed, I, I guess. Uh, that's what some people are saying. Sorry to cut you off. Please continue, sir. That's okay. That's okay. That's okay. That's okay. okay. Let me get back, back here. Okay. Um, Dusty, and if you want something the conglomerates don't offer, you can learn to do without. Dusty had no power to dictate terms and prices to suppliers, but the corporate cartels regularly dictate such terms and terms which usually can be met only by relocating production to low-wage or even slave-wage states. In short, Dusty was a distributist. He would, he would not, not have, have recognized, recognized the, term, the term, but he, but certainly, he certainly would have would recognized, recognized the fact. And had, and had he, he lived long, long enough, I suspect that could not have done, done anything, anything but mourn the passing, passing away of life. life. And, and we, we should, should all be mourning with him because that way of life depended on free men, free markets, 
and property. And these are the foundations not only of a just society, of a rich community life, but of economic rationality itself. And this way of life, the way of free men, free markets, and property, is at the heart of distributism. The most important feature of distributism is the notion of well-distributed property, and especially that property which is the gift of God, namely land. Land is the basic requirement of all production, and without it, nothing can happen. Even in the infinite space of the internet, you still need a physical space to place the servers. And those who control the land tend to control everything else, not just the economy, but the politics, and indeed the tone and tenor of a society. As Daniel Webster put it, power follows property, and where property is concentrated in the hands of a few, so also will power be concentrated. Distributism is not alone in seeking the wider distribution of property. Indeed, this is at the heart of every social encyclical, beginning with Rerum Navarum, with its call for a wider distribution of property through the mechanism of the just wage, a call that is repeated in all the Church's teachings right down to Laudato Si. But that should not lead us to thinking that this is merely a modern teaching. Indeed, it goes back to the earliest fathers of the Church, to St. Clement of Alexandria, to St. Basil the Great, to St. Ambrose of Milan, uh, to St. John Chrysostom, to St. Augustine of Hippo, and many others. And this teaching is carried through the scholastics, who regarded private property as subject to the common destination of goods, and reverting to its natural common state whenever the need arises. Modern economic orthodoxy would have us believe that property is an unlimited right with no restrictions on its acquisition. But property is a physical commodity, and the accumulation in a few hands leaves little for others. As G.K. Chesterton put it, if property is good for man, it is good for every man. And every right is regulated by its limits for unlimited rights always negate themselves to become mere license. Hence, unlimited property negates any real meaning of property. Again, as Chesterton put it, it is the negation of property that the Duke of Sutherland should have all the farms in one estate, just as it would be a negation of marriage if he had all our wives in one harem. This wide distribution of property is also the proper foundation of free markets. Capitalism has appropriated the language of free markets, but the reality is otherwise. Indeed, you will rarely find an economics textbook that even defines what is meant by a free market. But free markets have a meaning and a measure. The freedom of of the market is measured by the barriers to entry, and the primary barrier to entry is ordinarily accessed capital. And there is an absolute test of whether a market is free or, or not, namely the degree of competition. For free markets are always lively and competitive. So when we look at capitalist markets, 
Do we see a vigorous competition among small firms? No, we find a cartelized economy of giant collectives. Wherever you look, from beer to banking, from eyeglasses to entertainment, from food production to energy production, we find two or three firms that dominate the market and act as a cartel. Indeed, capitalism has collectivized the economy to a degree that would astound any Stalinist bureaucrat. So that wherever capitalism advances, the free market retreats. So in reality, you can have free markets or you can have capitalism, but you cannot have both. And in the final analysis, without free markets and the wider distribution of property, uh, which free markets entail, you cannot have free men. With all this in mind, I believe that there are three tasks before us. Remoralize the markets, relocal, relocalize the economy, and recapitalize the poor and the working classes. We must reject the capitalist claim to occupy a morally neutral space for the simple reason that such a space does not exist. All human action, interactions, take place within the sphere of ethics. We must relocalize the economy for the simple reason that a globalized economy is inefficient on the one hand and gives too much power to the corpor corporatists to play the workers off in one country against the workers in another country. Disenfranchising labor in the process and destroying communities and families as a side effect. And finally, we must work recapitalize the working class because this is the functioning support of family and of community. And these three, I believe, are the primary goals of a distributist economy. But perhaps the simplest way to put it is to say that we must find a place for Dusty and for his children and grandchildren in our economic and social lives. Because if we find a place for them, we find a place for ourselves and for our children. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much for your presentation, John. Uh, so what I've learned here is that uh, when we were, we were on the side-by-side -side split screen, unfortunately, there is going to be an echo. Uh, so I will avoid doing the split screen. So you're just stuck uh, looking at me when I'm talking and or looking at the participants when they're talking. At this point, I will turn it over to Jeff. If Jeff has any uh, questions for you, and then after Jeff asks his questions, um, I will revert any questions from Facebook uh, so far, if uh, any of them are of a clarifying nature. Jeff? Thank you, gentlemen. Uh, thank you for the story also, John, regarding Dusty. So it raises uh, some, uh, some questions, great questions, I think, very relevant. I'm perplexed that you believe that Dusty's grandchildren uh, are missing out on opportunities that he had possibly had. From my own standpoint, there are more economic opportunities available today, not just to me, but to my children, to walk onto a job site and earn $11 an hour, to go to school for free because uh, the lottery has funded college, uh, to start as a young teen, as a bagger at an enormous grocery store chain in the South and work your way up to being a six-figure corporate executive. 
I see uh, my friends using low-interest loans paid for by the uh, USDA to buy farms and to fund even the acquisition of the equipment uh, and their operating capital for the first year. I see millions of Americans engaging in freelance work where they can work from their home or an Internet cafe and leverage the skills that they have uh, to earn money, independent of any employer. I see millions more joining the gig economy where they drive for Uber uh, or they work for a delivery service or they find another way to leverage their ingenuity and their skills and their experience to make money completely outside uh, of a government system or a corporate system. In fact, I think it's easier now to start a business uh, than ever. And that's why we see millions of people doing just that. And finally, before I ask this question, I would point out that uh, 130 million Americans are homeowners. That's an enormous number, and it's a high percentage of the total number of adults. 55 million people are investors in the stock market. How could we possibly say that there are fewer opportunities today or uh, less of a distribution of uh, property than there was, say, 40 years ago? Okay, very good points. Uh, let me address them. The, uh, uh, these are empirical questions. So you can ask very easily whether we have more entrepreneurs today than we had back in, say, the 60s or the 70s. And in point of fact, the rate of entrepreneurship has dropped from about 18% to about 6%. And as a matter of fact, the United States is the least entrepreneurial country in the Western world, of all the developed economies. Even the so-called socialist economies have much higher rates of entrepreneurship than we have. As for the farms, the farms, the small, small family farm has in fact been subsumed by the factory farm. And the farms themselves have become adjuncts to the grain factors like Archer's Daniels Midlands. Um, the, there are fewer farms today, fewer family farms today than there have ever been in our history. And you also mentioned the gig economy. And this is very interesting. When you, I, they, this, the gig economy is, in fact, uh, associated with corporate America. It is not people making an independent living, but dependent upon corp corporate entities like Uber or Lyft or um, the... Um, the food delivery companies, etc. Uh, this gig economy is, in fact, an economy of disempowered labor with no rights, no benefits. Okay. Now, I think it is good. There's some good points. They can take their own capital and can, that would normally lie idle, like their car, and convert it through um, uh, labor into, um, uh, into cash, into a, a certain amount of cash. Uh, and that's good. But they are not in control. They have no benefits. They have no rights. Um, and so even today, having a job does not mean what it meant even 10 years ago. So there has been an enormous, uh, um, uh, and you, what, the one thing you didn't mention was the enormous amount of contract labor. I mean, which uh, <laughs> has... Uh, is as about as close to slavery as you can get, especially when it's on call contract uh, labor, where you can't even 
take another job because you're waiting for a call from this job and you don't work, you don't get paid, you don't have anything. So um, it is quite true that there are an enormous number of homeowners, or at least uh, people occupying a home, mostly are under mortgage. Um, that was a deliberate government policy uh, uh, to convert people into homeowners and highly dependent upon the interstate system, uh, without which the, um, the suburbs, as we understand them, could not even exist. So I really don't see that um, there's more opportunity today. The numbers simply don't bear that out. Uh, if they did, there would be it would be very easy to show, but I, I don't think you'll see that support uh, in the data. Would you agree that it's possible that um, Americans have become very much comfortable with the idea of that guaranteed paycheck with the benefits that come from working for a large employer? and that they desire the reliability and relative ease of those jobs compared to maybe what their grandparents did on a farm. Is it possible that the reason we've gone 98% of Americans living on a farm to 2% because farming is exceptionally hard work and nobody wants to do it? In fact, those family farmers that you mentioned that are the tiny shrinking group right now, they have an enormous succession crisis. Their kids don't want to work on the farm. Their grandkids don't want to work on the farm because it's so much easier to drive to a job, to have the comfort of knowing that you're going to get that paycheck, to have the benefits that those great big corporations that you bemoan are able to acquire that the small businesses can't get. Isn't there a lot more freedom to drive for Uber, to set your hours, to work as much or as little as you might want, uh, to choose the, the part of town you want to work in and the kinds of people you want to associate with. And, it, and isn't it true that contract labor gives you the flexibility to work more, perhaps, than your employer would provide in, in terms of hours? Or to schedule those times that you work around your family's need. Perhaps you're, you have a young child, and so you have to balance with your wife when to, to be home. Uh, I don't understand how you look at this data, how you see the choices that Americans are making and the quality of lives that they have relative to what we had just 20 years ago and see in any of this uh, the bad things that you see. The destruction of families isn't because of the economy. It's because of the abandonment of Christ. It's because the families are no longer teaching the Christian values that perhaps were the norm 50 years ago. I don't think it's fair to blame the collapse of our civilization uh, on economic decisions uh, that people are making that are in their own best interest. Well, I, you can you can say that these people that contract labor is freedom. Um, I'm not quite sure that that's a supportable um, um, thesis. If you have to, if you can only get contract labor. The reason most people are in contract labor is because they can't get one of these jobs that you're talking about. It's not a matter of freedom. It's a matter of necessity, even of desperation. And so I, I really have some, um, I just wonder what your contact there with, um, with, the, with these people are. The, um, I think people would prefer stable jobs. As you said, I agree with you. People would prefer a stable job working for a company uh, that had benefits, that had health insurance, uh, 
and that where they didn't have to, they didn't, they have some, maybe some sick days, some time off when they can handle some things. So, uh, the uh, the fact that uh, the, these jobs are sinking is not good news. And I think you're kind of arguing both sides here. You're arguing how wonderful the corporate jobs are and then saying how wonderful we, people can get away from them are. Well, I'm not quite sure that there is, um, uh, that there isn't a contradiction there. So which is it? Should we all go to gig, gig economy or should we all have these corporate jobs, which is it? Can be good for you, and I might want something different. Isn't shouldn't that be a, a, a core application of subsidiarity that that we each have the right to make that decision of how we want to earn our our wage? Well, uh, we each have uh, we each have the right to if the, if the decision if the uh, job is on offer, yes, we have the right to make a decision. If all you can get is gig labor and contract labor, then you're not take, making a choice. <laughs> you're, you're acting out of necessity. So uh, unfortunately, the, uh, the uh, corporatists are all outsourcing their jobs like Amazon to uh, contract labor. It's not that people want it, it's that they don't have a choice. Gentlemen, it looks like the time, the time limit is up for Q&A. Uh, Jeff is going to prepare his uh, his rebuttal, I think. But I, I do want to squeeze in two questions for you, John, uh, from the Facebook audience. Ben, uh, so I'll, I'll give them both to you up front and you can answer them both in turn. Ben asks, uh, practically speaking, John, how are we supposed to implement distributism? Doesn't it require the force of government to redistribute people's assets in order to uh, get to a distributist economy? And then Michael asks, um, why are we so fixated on the, you know, the land ownership property question when the, the real wealth in today's economy, the, the billionaire class, if you will, are all from the technology space? Uh, so I'll let you answer both of those while uh, Jeff prepares his 10-minute um, uh, introduction. Implementing is absolutely a big question. And so it's a matter of small steps. One thing you could do uh, uh, is simply enforce the antitrust laws. Don't permit someone to have that much power and get rid of the Bork Doctrine, which was totally uh, uh, judicial law and contrary to the intent and uh, will of Congress and of the law. What, what, could, you explain, could you explain what the Bork Doctrine is for those who might not be familiar? Yes, yes. So if we enforce the antitrust laws, that'd be a good start. So, and then the Bork Doctrine negated the antitrust laws. Bork decided in his judicial wisdom that monopolies were a good thing if they lowered prices. <laughs> but uh, that was not the intent of the law. He said you could have a monopoly if you had lower prices. And so he would not, he, he would not uh, rule against a corporation if it, if it can demonstrate that it lowered prices. The intent of the law was to break up monopolies. Now, you can easily lower prices, just outsource all your production to Bangladesh, to Guatemala, to Indonesia. You'll get lower prices, but you won't get a stronger society. You won't get stronger communities. Okay, there's we can stop the subsidies to corporate America. 
In fact, you cannot have the big box store unless you have subsidized transportation through the uh, interstate highway system. If instead of freeways, we had weight and distance tolls the, um, uh, so that they paid for themselves, then the whole Walmart model would collapse. And the whole big box store model would collapse. And so that's why I say you have to relocalize the economy. And believe me, just those two, just those two would go a long way toward um, relocalizing the economy and um, uh, moving toward a distributist economy. Now, the other question was land. Why is, well, land is the basic, you can't have an economy, you can't do anything without land. Like I say, even in the infinite space of, in, of the internet, you need land, all right? So land is uh, the three factors of production, land, labor, and capital. Land is the most important and um, is the prerequisite for the other two. Okay, thank you very much. Um, I think at this point, uh, I, what I would like to do is I would like to ask everybody's patience because if I can go to the side-by-side, I realize there's a there's an echo built into the side-by-side, but I think I can fix it in about 30 seconds or less if we just go. So I'm going to broadcast the side-by-side here. Now I'm going to ask everyone to uh, give us 30 seconds to try to fix this. I think it's just a couple clicks. That way we can enjoy the side-by-side. If it doesn't work, that's fine. Then uh, then we'll cut over to Jeff, and Jeff will uh, will provide his his proposition and rebuttal to your comments. So 60 seconds, everyone bear with me here. Okay, it doesn't look like I'm going to be able to fix it live. That's fine. We'll stick with uh, just our three main screens that we've been using. And uh, Jeff, I'll turn it over to you now. Uh, At this point, please uh, begin your remarks, sir. Thanks, Mike. Thank you again for hosting. Uh, I have to take issue with John's description of distributism. And this won't, uh, I know you won't take offense because this is a big part of the issue about distributism. Whose is it? Who gets to define was it, what it is? What does it really mean? How would the distributists do what they propose? I don't know how to answer uh, all of those questions and deal with the modern confusion without going back uh, to the fathers of distributism. And so I would, uh, I would allege uh, that distributism is, a, is an economic ideology that was developed by uh, Belloc and Chesterton and their friend Arthur Penty in the 19-teens and 1920s, and that their goal is to redistribute productive property from those who have to those who have not, or at least who have less, with the idea of creating uh, some sort of an equity. Now, the goal, as, as they explain it, and I will cite them extensively, is to get that land or productive assets into the hands of as many people as possible. The idea is that if everybody owns a farm, if everybody owned their own business, people, family, society would all be better off. Now, it sounds like a great and noble idea, and, and John does a fantastic job of, of selling it. And by selling it, I don't mean that uh, he's, he's trying to spin it or uh, be deceptive, but I, I think it's, it's what he believes. Uh, it, it's very romantic. But in the restoration of property, an essay by Belloc, he defined the sort of freedom that he imagines as, quote, 
from the possession of sufficient productive property such that a man need not depend upon his employer for a wage, but has rather to depend upon himself and his land, craft, tools, and trade for sustenance. Now that sounds great, but the majority of people don't want that. And many of the people who do that, and I can speak from experience as an entrepreneur, fail and suffer. Now, modern distributists, including uh, uh, John's friends uh, on his old blog and on Distributist Review, will say something like, ownership of the land by families who work that land results in financial stability and no fear of unemployment and the, the ability to put food on the table and be able to put supplies aside to, to be a hedge against destitution. But that's not the reality. That's not why the farmers fled their farms into the cities during the Industrial Revolution. It's not why over the last century, 98% of the people who used to work farms have left it for the better jobs, higher paying jobs, more stable jobs. So we can see from the very beginning that what the distributists want for other people is not what those people want for themselves. And that's a big problem for me. The creation of a system that will force upon people, society as a whole, things they don't want. Now, we've already talked about how American farmers have a succession problem. Their own children and, and grandchildren who know that lifestyle best, they don't want it. But we're talking about the moral problems with distributism. That's my concern. Can distributism be reconciled with Catholicism or even with a basic understanding of the divine law? And I advocate that it cannot and that a detailed review of everything that's been written about this over the last hundred years will bring you to that inevitable conclusion. Now, here's the reality. Belloc and Chesterton, Penty, were heavily influenced by Karl Marx. Belloc and Chesterton were trying to develop some sort of a Catholic response to his ideas. They didn't want socialism per se. They didn't want uh, communism, but they sure did not want a free market or capitalism. They were trying to come up with some sort of third way. Now, Penty was different. He was, he was a true communist, and he loved that. What he thought was that Christianity was actually communism. Now, unfortunately, as we'll see today over the next 30 minutes or so, what they proposed is objectively immoral. And while it's not true socialism, it violates the divine law and the man's right to wage and to dispose of his own property the way he sees fit. Now, as soon as I say that, distributist heads are blowing up everywhere because they'll claim that neither Belloc or Chesterton ever advocated taking wealth from one party and redistributing it to another. So let's go and see what they wrote about it. Now, in the Restoration of Private par uh, Property, page 33 through 39, I'm going to read to you what Belloc said. He said, in this attempt to restore economic freedom, the powers of the state must be invoked. Now, he's talking about taking large pieces of property and breaking them up. On page 38, he says, there must be some official machinery for fostering the propagation of small property, just as there is the official machinery today fostering the destruction of small widespread property by large owners. The effort at restoring property will certainly fail if it is hampered by a superstition against the use of force as the handmaid of justice. All the powers of the state have been invoked by capitalism to restore servile conditions. I'll let you decide for yourself whether or not that's true. We shall not react against servile conditions unless we avail ourselves of the same methods. That's frightening stuff. I teach my young children that two wrongs don't make a right. Even if we grant all of the problems that they thought they had, and I'll show you later that Belloc didn't even understand what was happening then, let alone predicting the future.
Now, Chesterton advocated an even more radical approach. In Part 5, Section 3 of his work, What's Wrong with the World, Chesterton advocated even more shocking methods. Quote, but if they want a domestic England, they must shell out, as the phrase goes, to a vastly greater extent than any radical politician has yet dared to su suggest. They must endure burdens much heavier than the budget and strokes much deadlier than the death duties. For the thing to be done is nothing more nor less than the distribution of the great fortunes and great estates. We can now only avoid socialism by a change as vast as socialism. If we are to save property, we must distribute property almost as sternly and sweepingly as did the French Revolution. If we are to preserve the family, we must revolutionize the nation. Now, to Catholic ears, this is shocking. It's appalling. The horror of recommending French Revolution kinds of things to get what you want done, you know that's not a moral solution. Both men also praise socialist and fascist experiments on the continent, especially in Mussolini's Italy. But it gets worse. I mentioned that Arthur Pinty was one of the leading early distributists. He was an unhesitating public Marxist at the time. He wrote a book called The Guildsman's Guide to History. It was his contribution to the distributist cause. He really believed that guilds were the way to accomplish these changes. He was fond of twisting scripture and the teaching of the church to meet his ends. He talked about how the early church continued the communistic traditions of the apostles. That's page 35. On page 36, he attacked the Roman church, talking about how pure communism only survives in the Roman Catholic church through religious orders. He talks about how the appeal of Rome was so great because it was resisting the authority of Pope uh, and the early traditions of the church. He says, quote, those traditions were communist, and it was because the early Christians despised wealth that they could ap approach God without the intervention of a priestly mediator. But when Luther alienated the peasants, he separated his gospel from any possible communist base. Now, anybody who knows their Bible knows that what we see in Acts with the apostles and the early disciples was private charity. It wasn't communism. The inability of distributists to understand that basic but profound difference tells us we can't trust them to follow the moral law. But I hope this gives you some perspective on the founding fathers of distributism. So these men advocate for things like subsidizing special artisans, heavy communist-style progressive tax schemes applied to certain businesses, and then shifting that money to other businesses to fund their own competition. For example, a big box store having to pay heavy taxes to give that money to a small business to compete with them or a wholesaler having to pay special taxes to create and fund a guild to compete against them. Rules and taxes that make it harder for, for people with real estate to, to split it up or to buy more. Rules for leasing property that would guarantee the tenant the right to that property uh, indefinitely. A, a series of state-created and funded and managed credit unions to compete with the private market. Now, if you read distributists, you can't avoid seeing this. But here's what's scary. Belloc criticized the socialists for not going far enough. I don't have time in my first chapter here to get to that, but I'm going to cite it. Now, here's what's critical to distributors. It's not just redistributing the private property. It's setting wages. Distributors will argue that, that the society has the goal to set the wages of what will be paid to employees in any given time and place. Why? Because they believe that employers will take advantage 
of those employees. And I think John has alluded to that in his opening remarks. So the government must set and control the wages. Now, this gets complicated if everybody's working for themselves, right? If we all have our own farms and our small, small businesses, why would the government need to be involved in setting our wages? Maybe John will answer that question in his turn. But the distributors also want to set prices. Now, in their minds, a price that is too high is like gouging people. And a price that is too low is unjust, right? Like a large organization producing a product at a low price that a small guy can't compete with. So they think that that the prices for goods and services have to be set too in order to have a just price. Now, I'm going to show you in a few minutes how this concept of a just price, it's immoral. It hurts families always, everywhere it's been tried. Now, after all that property has been redistributed, after they try to manage prices and wages, inequalities are going to return, right? Some people are better farmers than others. Some people don't want to farm. Some people are lazy. So the people who are good at farming and who want to farm will, of course, grow. They'll add farms that are next to them and so forth, buying up farms from the people who are lazy or who are not good at it. The distributors oppose this. Where possible, they're going to prohibit by law the selling of this kind of land, or they would tax a transfer at such a high rate as to make it unprofitable for you to bother with the transaction. Now, I believe this is a demonstration of how great and profound their attack on private property is. It's not in the interest of the family who wants to buy. It's not in the interest of the family who wants to sell. It is in the interest of the government to maximize its control on the economic decisions that husbands and wives make for their family. Finally, I'm going to show that what Belloc and Chesterton believed at the time that they were living was completely wrong. Everything they said about what was happening to the workforce and the economy and the, and the businesses was wrong. And that everything they predicted would happen in the future to people was wrong. And I think that, that my debate partner and I, John, we're probably going to have a profound disagreement about this because when he did an interview with Ryan Grant in 2015, he talked about the distribution of capital and how it, the output from uh, activities must be proportionate to the contribution to that output. He said that those who contributed the most to an economic activity weren't getting the most out of it. I think we're going to have a big disagreement about what the value of labor and capital and skilled labor really is in these activities. Now, finally, distributors oftentimes present distributism as Catholic economics or a Catholic third way, and they're fond of proof texting papal encyclicals in support of some sort of theory like this. You're going to hear from me today that not only do the popes not support those methods, the popes that themselves deny that their authority should be invoked in this way. For example, Pope Leo, who is the famous, uh, the favorite of distributists, says, quote, if I were to pronounce on any single matter of a prevailing economic problem, I should be interfering with the freedom of men to work out their own affairs. Certain cases must be solved in the domain of facts, case by case, as they occur. Men must realize in deeds those things that the principles of which have been placed are beyond dispute. These things one must leave to the solution of time and experience. Now, that's someone who really believes in subsidiarity, who knows that he can't dictate from Rome what's going to happen in the corner of, of Italy or Sicily, let alone someplace in the United States. It's not just old Pope Leo, though. John Paul II, a hundred years later, in Solicitudo Rei Socialis said, the church's social doctrine is not a third way between liberal capitalism and Marxist collectivism, nor even is it a possible alternative to other solutions less radically opposed to one another. Rather, it constitutes a category of its own. 
The church has no economic model to bind consciences with. Models that are real and effective can only arise within the framework of different historical situations. The Pope goes on and on, as does Pope Benedict. So as I summarize and turn this back, I would ask John, do you agree that how I have represented distributism is true? Are you familiar with the writings of Belloc and Chesterton and Penty that I've cited and those of Pope John Paul II? I am very familiar with those writings. Um, I think you haven't quite um, represented them well, but uh, let's ignore that. I'm pretty sure you've misrepresented John Paul II. Okay, yes, it is true. He says, he says the church is, does not have an economic model. That's absolutely correct. What the church offers is a standard of judgment for every other model. And before anybody can say they have Catholic economics, they have to judge it by whether it pays a just wage, whether it supports the community, whether you look around and you do you find that people are living at a standard of dignity appropriate to that society and are doing it without having to put wives and children to work. And when we look at our economy, that's not happening. That's not happening. Are there methods for redistribution of property? Yes, there are, and we should capitalize on them. We should not allow vast concentrations of property, because if you have vast concentrations of property, you will have, on the one hand, vast concentrations of political power, and you will have, the dis you will have what we see, the dissolution of, that's of the social capital. And that's what we see in our politics today, this dissolution of social capital. That defines what's happening today. So the um, uh, one thing you cannot do is confuse free markets with capitalism. Capitalism is and was from the beginning a state project. Now you say people don't want to farm. In fact, it took a lot of effort to get people to move from the farms to the cities. The first thing you had to do was enclose the commons. You had to treat the common land of, upon which the rural economy uh, depended as, as a private property. That was the enclosure movements. Okay, you had to destroy the, uh, the uh, uh, garden lands. Um, and so the first thing that capitalists do, wherever they go, is destroy the rural economy. It happened in India, it happened in China, it happened in Africa, it happened in South America, it happened everywhere. Okay, in the United States, it was the policy from the Eisenhower administration on that the farmer, that you could not have small farms. You had to get big or to get out. And in fact, there was no succession problem on the small farms. Now, the small farms themselves, what they found, however, is that they were the victims of vast corporate power because the only way they could move their goods was through the railroads. And guess what? The railroads were a monopoly. All right. Now, the United States, in fact, did have another problem is that we have too much productive land and not enough people uh, to fill it. And so the price of grain 
the price of wheat, I think, dropped from somewhere around, and I'm quoting from memory, I may be wrong, but it, but the proportions are right. So it dropped something like $1.25 a bushel down to something like 25 cents a bushel at the end of the century. Um, and the um, with that much land um, uh, under cultivation, yes, there was absolutely uh, a problem. So, um, but the Eisenhower administration's solution was to force the farmers uh, into big farms, into factory farms. And in fact, these factory farms have produced, uh, they handle millions and millions of dollars of budgets, but the margins are so small and they're all, they're all adjuncts of the grain factors. They're practically employees. Now, you also talked about forcing people to work. Um, I have no idea what you're talking about there. You'll have to tell me that. Uh, it's not that people, as I said, take these jobs as gig laborers because they want these jobs as gig laborers. They take these jobs because there's no good employment available for them. The position of labor has collapsed. The unions have collapsed. The bargaining power of labor has been so destroyed by globalism. So if you don't like the wages, you can't go on strike because they'll say, fine, there's a guy in Bangladesh who'll do it for a lot cheaper. Okay, that's not freedom. And that's not Catholic. Um, um, that's not Catholic economics. Gentlemen, uh, I just want to cut in here. Uh, I've, got, I've got a few questions from Facebook for you, Jeff, just on your presentation. I think some of these questions might help clarify exactly what you said and uh, and then we'll we'll allow John uh, time after that to um, to sort of prepare a uh, a rebuttal so four questions the first is um, uh, Evan asks about what about the papal encyclicals uh, referring to widespread ownership of property I know that you mentioned from one of the encyclicals that the Pope was uh, wise not to weigh in on these things, but, but then uh, Jeffrey added on, what about specifically uh, Quadragissimo Anno, which talks about widespread ownership of property? Yes. Um, if I can, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to address those questions uh, shortly in a formal way, uh, quoting from Quadragissimo Anno. And, and I think the important thing here is understanding what the popes see as their proper role. It's not to dictate how Jeff or John can earn a wage or what Jeff may or uh, may not do with his farm, but rather to establish moral principles that should be applied. That's the, the role of the Catholic Church is to teach the moral law that comes out of the deposit of faith that our Lord uh, provided. It's not to dictate how much a person in Dallas or in Nashville should earn for hanging drywall. That's a, that's a misunderstanding of the role of the Catholic Church. So if I can, I'll defer. Okay, that's fine. Okay, uh, second question. This comes from Justin, who's a top fan of RTF uh, in Atlanta. Justin asks, what about beauty? I mean, isn't it true that things have just become ugly in capitalism? Isn't capitalism ugly? How can we get back to a sense of graceful Catholic beauty in our economics, in the in the products that are produced, and and uh, and all of that, isn't capitalism stale? 
Yeah, well, with respect, I, I would I would like to remind Justin uh, in Atlanta that we're here to talk about distributism and whether or not it's compatible with Catholicism. We could have endless conversations about what capitalism is or or what we think it does and that sort of thing. And I, I think we'd be going down a rabbit hole. Um, but I will answer with this. What John thinks is beauty and what I think are beauty might be different things. And our Lord gave us free will and reason for a reason, so that we would use it. And, there, and beauty comes not when we're all exactly the same. And, and economic productivity does not come when we all do exactly the same thing. The division of labor, it's a very good thing, because you know what? I don't want to do what another man does want to do, and I may not be very good at it, but he's very good at it. And likewise, I may have a product or service that I enjoy producing that he very much wants and needs. So our definition of beauty can be different, and that's okay. And and other than that, I don't want to get off off topic when this. Okay, that's fair. Uh, Chad asks, uh, and I think this will help clarify exactly kind of what you're promoting. Um, and it's a specific example, but you can probably, in, uh, through inductive uh, reasoning, kind of deduce um, a little bit more about what you're thinking here, Jeff. Chad asks, do you support getting the government out of highway building and road building, uh, or how, how, would you, how would you specifically solve that issue with, uh, with, your, with your proposed theories here? Well, well again, I, I, what I'm doing here is establishing that I don't think that Catholics can morally uh, support or attempt to implement what the distributors propose. That's, that's my role in this debate. Do I think that there are other potentially better ways to, to handle building of the roads? Well, well sure. Uh, we pay for the roads already, and then the, the government hires a private company to build the road. So what is it that the government is doing that's so special that potentially couldn't be done some other way? I don't know. Uh, I think that's beyond the, the scope of this of this chat, but I'm, I'm happy to, you know, yield the rest of my time to John to address all of those questions. That's fine. One, one more question for you, um, if I could, and then we'll, uh, and then John will, John will have a, a five or so minute block, uh, time period to, to re respond to your uh, presentation. Paul asks about, uh, your, your reading of Chesterton specifically, and he, and he relates, you know, Jeff, wasn't Chesterton just witnessing that that the land in particular was so concentrated in the hands of the nobility that Chesterton was trying to solve that particular problem? And isn't uh, isn't your uh, representation of his ideas an unfair representation thereof? Yeah, I don't think that that logic works for, because we've just heard from from John that he is advancing the same argument in 2020 in the United States, effectively that there is this unjust uh, concentration of land and thus power that comes from that. So I would say it's very much the same thing. I, I don't, I hope John doesn't think that I'm mischaracterizing it, but I, I think that Belloc saw a lot of wealthy people who owned a disproportionate amount of land. I would reference uh, Pareto's law, you know, the old 80-20 rule. This tends to happen in nature. It's true that there are inequalities between the, the richest people and, and the, the poorest people, but I think that's a mistaken principle. Uh, Bill Gates or, or Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos, them having that $200 billion net worth, that doesn't hurt me. It doesn't change my lifestyle one bit. And our Lord told us that we would always have the poor among us. Well, by a lot of standards, I could be considered poor based on the number of children that are living in, in my home. But you know what? 
I live a lifestyle that's better than Belloc ever could have imagined. And in fact, the poorest people in the United States live lifestyles that are better than the kings of England at the time that Belloc and Chesterton were complaining about these things. So I would say respectfully to the, to the gentleman who asked the question that, no, it, I don't think I'm misrepresenting it. I think it's exactly the same argument that John is making now, 1920 England and 2020 United States. I, I think the distributors say that nothing's changed or it's worse. Yeah, I, I will say it's worse. Yeah. <laughs> go, go ahead, Jeff. Happy to say that. <laughs> go ahead, John. You've you've got uh, five minutes, sir. Yeah, I mean it's abs- it's absolutely worse, and the numbers uh, show that uh, the property is even more. Uh, and by property, I don't just mean land. Now Chesterton and Belloc were talking primarily about land, but the uh, the stock market is mainly an upper class affair. Okay, it doesn't affect the rest of us. The um, um, uh, more and more power and property, including productive properties of all sorts, are um, concentrated in fewer and fewer hands. And the work, the situation of the working uh, class is, in fact, deteriorating. It is not true that a poor person today lives better than a king in previous ages. That's simply nonsense. In the first place, he has no security. Okay. In the second place, uh, his um, uh, his housing may not actually be as good. And now there's true, he has things like a cell phone. Oh, that's a luxury. No, it's not. It's a necessity. A thing that becomes a necessity that you have to shell out for in order to be able to participate in economic life uh, is not an advantage. It's a requirement. Um, you know, it's funny what you say about the popes. They're, they're, not, they're not even ambiguous on this point. All of the encyclicals, without exception, call for the wider distribution of property. There are are no exceptions to that, okay? So if the popes are not advancing, you are correct, an economic system, they're advancing a way to judge an economic system. And if it doesn't lead to this wider distribution of property, then it's not a just system. And if it doesn't lead to a just wage, and a just wage is a wage that allows the, the worker to provide for his family, Okay, without undue reliance on credit, without putting his wife and children to work, without working undue hours, then it's not, and without providing some security uh, from savings, okay, then it is not a just wage. There's no debate in Catholic social teaching about that. Now, there's justly debates about how to get there from here. Okay, that's that's perfectly fine. I don't have any problem with that. But to say that there's there's some sort of confusion in Catholic social teaching is just not true. As far as just price, that was the economic system of the Middle Ages. The prices were set by guild. The prices were set by the bishop. The prices were, were um, uh, both the rate of profit and the rate of interest were controlled by the church. Uh, as a matter of fact, the church maintained a system of courts that controlled purely what we would call economic matters. 
So usury was um, a matter for the ecclesiastical courts, not the civil courts. Uh, commercial relations were a matter for ecclesiastical courts, not civil courts. And so uh, just price is an idea that appears in St. Thomas Aquinas. And you're right, it doesn't allow price gouging. Now, Aquinas will allow the price to vary from the just price by uh, a large margin, um, up to 50%. But it still maintains an idea that you cannot, uh, uh, you are not free to set prices and that the state indeed, the state is actually an incorrect term to apply to that situation, but the prince uh, and the bishop can indeed, indeed set the prices. All right, so uh, I don't see anything in distributism that allows, that hinders anybody from disposing of their own property. So I simply do not understand that critique. But you are quite right, and we can agree on this point, that it wants a wider distribution of property. So how would that work? Well, in fact, we can look to working examples. In fact, we can look to the whole East right now. Because after World War II, with the land of the tiller programs, uh, you will find the redistribution of property was the foundation of the reconstruction of South Korea, Japan, and Taiwan. And so we can talk about the land of the, uh, the tiller program and just how successful it was at catapulting, say, Taiwan from a backward, feudal society to an industrial powerhouse in just one generation. Now, those of my age will remember back in the 50s when we used to get crap from Taiwan, and that's what it was, was crap. Taiwan meant cheap and nasty. 20 years later, they were uh, kicking our tail in cameras, optics, steel buildings, industries of every sort all based on land redistribution. So this turns out not only not to be at odds with a modern society, but a basis for it, a demonstrable basis for it. So um, you don't like the government involved, but that puts you on the side of the Manchesterian liberals. Well, uh, Pope Pius XI had some choice words for the Manchester liberals. So in Quadragesimo Anno, he says, property, that is capital, has undoubtedly long been able to appropriate too much to itself. Whatever was produced, whatever returns accrued, capital claimed for itself, hardly leaving to the worker enough to restore and renew his strength. For the doctrine was preached that the accumulation of capital falls by an absolutely insuperable economic law to the rich, and that by, that by the same law, workers are given over and bound to perpetual want. It is true that things have not always and everywhere responded with this sort of teaching of the so-called Manchesterian liberals, what we would call today the libertarians, yet it cannot be denied that economic and social institutions have steadily moved in that direction. 
All right, uh, Jeff, uh, I want to give you an opportunity to just respond to those things. If you have any questions for John, you can definitely ask him. But what we just heard John say, maybe uh, four or five major points. He said, first, the stock market is an upper-class affair and that it's whatever happens in the stock market doesn't really affect all of us. He said that the popes have all uh, unequivocally argued for the wider distribution of property. He said that in the Middle Ages, the bishops used to set the prices, and uh, and, he, and he thinks that might be a good uh, thing to go back to. He mentioned the tiller program and uh, and the East, especially Taiwan and South Korea, and the technological advancements that we've all witnessed thereof. And then he quoted Quadrigismo Anno. So Jeff. Uh, Kassman with five minutes to respond. If you have questions, obviously ask them, and then I'll be calling Facebook for follow-up questions. Yeah, I, I don't uh, I don't think there's any doubt of, that the popes have encouraged a widespread distribution of property, and I certainly want everyone to have a property. I wish everyone had not five acres, but 50, or, or how about 500? Just like I wish everyone made uh, not $15, but $50 an hour, or how about $150 an hour? Wouldn't that be great? Well, I wish, I wish rainwater was beer, but it's not. And when we're dealing with the created world, we have scarcity. So our dreams and our imaginations and our appetites for things can't always be satisfied. Now, there's been a lot of uh, insinuation. Well, maybe I'm, I'm a liberal. In fact, I admitted yesterday that I have a television in my home, so some trads called me a liberal. Uh, well, I don't know, but let's approach this from a very basic moral question. Does this redistribution of someone else's property, whether it's in Taiwan or whether it's in England, United States, against their will and giving it to other people who did not work for it, who did not pay for it, is that compatible with the divine law? What is the point of the commandments against theft and against covetousness if you can take somebody else's property simply because you desire it? Now, St. Thomas does have... Uh, a different view than uh, modern popes have had, like Pope Leo, regarding our rights to private property. St. Thomas believes and asserted that these rights to private property were more of a construct of the law, and therefore they could be more easily regulated. Pope Leo talks about these rights to private property as being natural, natural law rights, sacred and inviolable. Now, when I say it's immoral to take somebody else's property, distributists will say, well, we we have the right to it because of this, that, and the other reason. But when they cite St. Thomas, it's really disingenuous because the example that St. Thomas gives in the Summa is of a man who's starving to death and who has that right to the excess of the rich man that he comes across. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about taking uh, the wealth of other people and distributing it with the goal of equity so that everybody has a relatively similar amount of property. You won't find that in the deposit of faith. You won't find any support for that in the popes simply to have equity as the goal. So I, I really think that they're, they're quoting uh, th- these papal encyclicals, they're, they're proof texting. St. Thomas, in the second part of the second part of the Summa, 66, Article 7, if the need be so manifest and urgent that it is evident that the present need must be remedied by whatever means at hand, for instance, when a person is in some imminent danger and there is no other possible remedy, for example, if private charity is not available or if government uh, welfare, then it is lawful for a man to succor his own need by means of another's property by taking it either openly or secretly. Uh, So, you know, there's a long Catholic history of natural 
law rights to private property. Now, when I talk about private property and I say you don't have the right to, to steal a man's, another man's property, uh, distributors will say to me, oh, these are enlightenment ideas, or Calvin came up with that notion, or you believe in absolute property rights. Well, guess what? Uh, Pope John XXII in his bull, Quia Vir uh, Reprobis, said he condemned these concepts 600 years before Karl Marx came up with these ideas. And Henry of Ghent in the 13th century uh, taught the same thing, as did the Spanish scholastics like uh, Father Molina. Now, John knows all these people. But it's the same constant trend from at least the 13th century to Pope Leo. We talked about Rerum Novarum earlier in paragraph 22 and paragraph 46. I already cited this. He talked about private ownership as a natural right of man. So he has elevated the rights to that private property above what St. Thomas was talking about uh, 700 years before. We can't now turn the clock back and say, well, Pope Leo, uh, he wasn't so right, and neither was John the Twenty Second, uh, and neither were the scholastics and all of these other folks. They've somehow gotten it all wrong. The distributists in the 1920s have figured it all out. So I, I think it's very disingenuous, not of John, but of distributists who think that pointing to St. Thomas and the case of the starving man offers them an opening for just just attacking the private wealth of people because they have more. And, and I would really ask, just as, a, as an aside, once you empower government to take all this wealth from the people who are already rich and powerful, what will ever stop that same government from then turning on the poor people who don't have the concentration of rich, of wealth and power to defend themselves? It's a terrible approach. Let me just uh, let me throw a question at you, Jeff, uh, before we go over to John. Uh, Jim Warner asks a very good question, I think, and he and he basically asks, "What about usury? Um, usury has been condemned uh, by many popes throughout time. My own my own uh, study of usury, you know, it starts off where you're you're denied ecclesiastical burial if you are guilty of usury." Usury initially was defined as charging any interest on money at all. Then that was relaxed, depending on whether or not who's bearing the risk over time. But there are 15 or so uh, entries in Denzinger, if you go chronologically, just in the, in the study of usury. But, but Jim's question is, doesn't capitalism uh, depend on usury? And how could capitalism exist if you were to remove usury from it? Well, again, I'm not, I'm not arguing for capitalism. I'm arguing that distributism uh, is immoral and incompatible with, with Catholicism. And, and, uh, and unfortunately, this is kind of a false dichotomy that distributors will offer. Well, it must be capitalism, right? Well, I certainly don't believe that. Uh, the, the whole construct of the third way is, is very good uh, propaganda, right? We're positioning ourselves as the only alternative. But uh, there's there's communism, there's socialism, there's fascism, there's capitalism, there's distributism. What about a free market? Um, wouldn't that be an interesting conversation? What what about families doing economic transactions without the government telling them what they could and couldn't do, what they had to pay and what they they couldn't pay, what they could only earn and what they couldn't? Earn? Wouldn't wouldn't that be a novel concept? So maybe we'll have a debate about that. What I'd say about usury is the greatest example of usury in the modern world is the Federal Reserve that creates something out of nothing and then uses that power and that monopoly that's far greater than anything any corporation could ever possess 
they use it to completely debase the wages of the worker, to every day silently tax his wages into oblivion. They've destroyed his wages by 99% since they were created to make sure this didn't happen. And worse, now the Federal Reserve is injecting trillions of dollars into the market. And that doesn't go to small business people. It doesn't go to families. It goes to the very multinational, huge corporations that, that John is opposed to. And then they use that money to get competitive advantages. So why don't we start, if we're going to, capital, if we're going to uh, end usury, with abolishing the Federal Reserve. And by the way, I've read distributists. I can't find distributists arguing to abolish the Federal Reserve. And John, when you and I were talking back in July and August about this, I tried to get you to join me saying abolish the Federal Reserve. It's the greatest usurious organization ever to exist in history. And you, you, you wouldn't take the bait. I'd love to hear your answer why. But why would we spend time talking about just wages and just prices and not talk about the elephant in the room that's destroying that wage faster and faster every single day. It's a silent tax. They're destroying our wage. What about that? that? John? I want to go back to the medieval view of property. And it's not the medieval view. It goes back to the early church. It goes back to St. Basil the Great. It goes back to St. John Chrysostom. It goes back to St. Augustine of Hippo. And um, can you not hear me? We've, we've got you. You were a little soft, but now you're fine. Okay. Okay. So, yes, um, uh, it goes back to all of them. They all speak against private property. St. Augustine will say that private property is aptly named because it named, because in Latin, private indicates privation. And that's what privation, private property is, a privation of property. Uh, so uh, this is not something new. As there is no tradition, there is no natural law tradition of property within Catholicism. Zip, zero, zilch, not among the Spanish scholastics, who followed uh, uh, both Aristotle and Aquinas pretty closely on that. They did not view property as part of the natural law, but as a human addition. Now, this private property was good to the extent that it contributed to the common good. And when it ceased to con uh, contribute to the common good, then it wasn't good. But the common good was the judge, okay? So it was, property is by law. And that's, by the way, something that every economist uh, uh, agrees to. So even Ludwig von Mises would say, property is whatever the state says it is, all right? Uh, so there's no, uh, there's no dispute about that among economists. There's certainly no dispute about it among scholastics. There is simply no natural law. There is true. Leo used the Lockean definition of property. That was an innovation. He used the Lockean definition of property, and that hadn't been done before in Catholic teaching. Okay, But every, every encyclical since then has sort of corrected Leo on that point. Okay, there's simply, when you get uh, to quadragesimo anno and everything that follows on that, then you will not find a natural law uh, position on property. You'll find a human law uh, tradition on property. Now, that doesn't mean that we're opposed to property. It's opposed to the vast concentrations of property. Now, you talked about scarcity. And scarcity 
is the big error. There is no scarcity. All scarcities are man-made, artificial. And I think Gandhi put, oddly enough, the Catholic position better than anybody else. He says, God gives enough for each man's needs, but not enough for even one man's avarice. Scarcity is always human. Scarcity is man-made. Um, the now it's true, we cannot always fulfill all of our uh, avaricious needs, but there's always enough for every man's needs. That's God's gift. Poverty is our choice. All right, you are quite uh, correct that um, some people don't want property. I, for one, don't want um, land, property and land, but I do want enough of a, a property to uh, secure a good living for myself and my family, and that property might be tools, it might be education, it might be other kinds of property, but that property has to be distributed, okay? Because what you don't, this is economic rationality, okay? Supply and demand are codependent variables. When you don't distribute enough uh, of the output throughout society, you get failures of demand. That's what a recession is. Okay? It's always a failure of demand, which leads to a financial collapse. All right, well, and usury uh, multiplies that. So the, um, um, the free market if you want a free market, you cannot have it in an economy of corporate collectives. They cooperate to set the price, the price of labor, the price of capital, and they cooperate to control the government to externalize their costs, as we talked about with the transportation system. So the majority of the transportation, the transportation system is subsidized. And who gets the advantages of those subsidies are the largest users. Okay. You take away the subsidies, Walmart goes away. Guess what? You have dusty roads. All right. So we can go from the freeways, the subsidized freeways, to dusty roads. We can relocalize the economy just by that one change. Okay. So um, the uh, uh, but the major point is free markets depend on vigorous competition. Vigorous competition depends on there not being a few companies in control of markets. You walk into the grocery store, and so you see 30, 40, 50 brands of cereal, and you think, free competition. But there's only two companies behind that. <laughs> you go to get eyeglasses, and you think there's 25 different brands. They're all owned by Luxottica of Italy. You go into the store and there's dozens of brands of beer. 90% of the market is um, Budweiser South African Brewing, uh, or Budweiser, I mean, um, um, the Belgium company and uh, Miller South African Brewing. 
There is no real competition. And without real competition, you don't have a real free market. So you want a free market and I want a free market. And the only way to get to a free market is through distributism. Okay. Uh, interesting presentation. Thank you so much for that. I don't know why I'm hearing myself. I shouldn't be hearing myself. Is there an echo out there? If there is, uh, just give me a quick thumbs up. My question for you, John, as a follow-up to that, David from Facebook says, you say that private property is an is a man-made invention. How do you square that with the commandment, thou shall not steal? Doesn't that commandment imply that private property is a divine command? question because we flattened the question of property to categories which would not have been known by previous ages so we flattened the question to private property versus uh, collective property but there are whole different varieties of property um, and I think it uh, would help if we introduce the term personal property um, so property always begins communally Property is always the property of the um, community, and it is parceled out to families for the good of the community, the good of the village. Um, the, uh, but as time goes on, some people claim the property, uh, and mostly through government and military power, uh, some group claims to control all of the property. So uh, the... Um, um, and this gets subsumed into an unlimited right of private property, which then gets sacralized. All right. The Catholic Church has stood against this sacralization of property throughout. Now, you can cite Leo, who cited Leo, uh, who cited Locke, but that's an exception to the rule. OK, it's uh, and also it had to do with Leo's um, particular background. Leo changed a lot from. Uh, the beginning to the end of his uh, pontificate, uh, but he never lost, and he's quite right, never to lose that fear of socialism and communism. Okay. If we want a free market, we must have a, a, a wider distribution of property. We cannot have a free market in the face of corporate collectives any more than we can have a market in the face of government collectives. Uh, thank you so much for your presentation, John. A lot of folks on Facebook are wanting you to clarify Jeff's question to you, which heretofore has been unanswered with regards to your view on the Federal Reserve and uh, re uh, centralized banking in general. Do you support the Federal Reserve or do you oppose it? Uh, the uh, that question is situational. We have a credit-based money system and a fully monetized economy. All right, in a credit-based uh, system, money takes on a different meaning than it and a fully monetized economy, and that's simply too large a question uh, here. Um, if you don't, in fact, the banks create money by lending it. When you go to a bank and you sign a note for a car or a mortgage for a house, or you sign that credit slip at McDonald's, that money does not exist until they lent it. That's credit money. That's our system. Um, banks do not lend out deposits. 
deposits are held as a reserve against losses. Uh, they create the, the, the funds that they lend. Now, in that kind of a system, you need a means for governing it. Whether the, you can argue whether the Federal Reserve is the proper means for this creation of money through credit. Okay, that's a different debate and not really related to the debate on distributism. But it's an interesting debate to have. Um, but you can't confuse the kind of money we have in a fully monetized economy with the kind of money they had in partially monetized economies. Okay, that's fair. Uh, so what I'll do is I'll, I'll turn it over to Jeff. Jeff will have a five-minute block to respond to everything that you had said, John. And then I think what we can do after that is just kind of give both of you an opportunity, like a, maybe a two-minute summary opportunity to put a final point on your arguments. We are running long, but there are quite a few viewers on Facebook right now. We fluctuated between 100 and 200 viewers um, on the live stream, and I think we're going to have a lot of participation after the fact. So, Jeff, I'll turn it over to you, sir. John, I imagine you probably are going to have more to say at the end, but two minutes to accommodate. You want five minutes at the end? Can we, can we bully our host here? here? I'm sorry. Is there a question that I I can't barely hear hear you? Okay. okay. I I, I, I suppose my five minutes at the end. Getting a pretty much like some. seems like we're having a small echo, and I'm not sure what is causing that. I apologize for those who are viewing live. Um, Jeff, could you try muting and unmuting your mic, sir? Okay, test, test. Okay, you sound good to me. Go ahead. Good. All right. So I think there's an interesting question that, that John has raised that, that popes could be wrong about Catholic social teaching. And, and that's probably beyond the scope of this conversation. But if Leo could be wrong about a central question like whether or not private property rights are, are part of the natural law, whether they are, in fact, as he said, sacred and inviolable, if he could be wrong about that, then what couldn't a pope be wrong about when it comes to these questions of property and wages and, uh, and, and the, the application of Catholic moral teaching? Now, I know there's some people that believe that. Absolutely. They believe that this entire development in the last 120 years about Catholic social teaching uh, is not in any way binding on Catholics. That would be really interesting. But as soon as we say that Leo was wrong, then every pope could be claimed to be wrong when they try to interpret this, let's admit, it's, it's kind of a modern novel teaching. Now, here's an interesting thing about the redistribution of property, about wages and so forth. There have been experiments about this. We can look back and see what's happened. In the 1960s in the United States, I wasn't born yet. John probably remembers. There was a war on poverty, and we've spent trillions of dollars redistributing productive assets, that is to say, Federal Reserve notes to people. And, and so we can look back and see what's happened. We can see whether or not the good intentions produced the positive outcomes that they had hoped. Enormous taxes were raised, government programs were created uh, in extraordinary ways. What did they result in? They created a permanent underclass. There was a breakdown of the family because people were no longer 
dependent upon the dad to be there to make a job. Dad could run off now because mom was going to get a check for those kids. These kinds of modern experiments have led to what Pope John Paul II cited as the government being a real threat to the human family. In Santissimus Annus, paragraph 48, I'm going to read it because I think it's so critical. Malfunctions and defects in the social assistance state are the result of an inadequate understanding of the tasks proper to the state. Now, this is a man who knew something about socialism and communism and the state. Returning. Here again, the principle of subsidiarity must be respected. A community of a higher order should not interfere in the internal life of a community of a lower order, depriving the latter of its functions, but rather should support it in case of need and help to coordinate its activity with the activities of the rest of society, always with a view to the common good. By intervening directly in depriving society of its responsibility, the social assistance state leads to a loss of human energies and an inordinate increase of public agencies, which are dominated more by bureaucratic ways of thinking than by concern for serving their clients, and which are accompanied by an enormous increase in spending. In fact, it would appear that the needs are best understood and satisfied by people who are closest to them and who act as neighbors to those in need. Now, this is a broadside against the top-down, centrally managed government scheme the distributists oppose. Uh, and I have personal experience with this. Working through the local St. Vincent de Paul Society at my local parish, I know the great good they do. I know they weed out all of the bad players. In fact, they coordinate not just with every other church in town, but with the United Way and the government to make sure people aren't scamming the system. The government's not going to do that. Now, you and I, uh, dear listeners, you already know that governments are the primary enemy of the family, of the faith, and of freedom. They've killed hundreds of millions of people in the last century. Pope Benedict also wrote something along these lines, Deus Caritas Est, paragraph 28. The state which would provide everything, land, a guaranteed wage, guaranteed prices, capable of absorbing everything into itself, would ultimately become a mere bureaucracy incapable of guaranteeing the very thing which the suffering person needs, namely, loving personal concern. If you ever had to deal with the state, if you've ever had to go to the post office, or the driver's license station to renew something, or God forbid you've had to get on food stamps or, or health care, you know these people don't care. But a state which, in accordance with the principle of subsidiarity, generously acknowledges and supports initiatives arising from the different social forces and combines spontaneity with the closest to those in needs. Now, there could not be a greater contrast between the central government and voluntary Catholic charities like St. Vincent de Paul. So when we go back to St. Thomas and we try and project forward into time what his thoughts were about the state in the 13th century when the government was Catholic, when it was small, when it was weak, when it was local, and it embraced subsidiarity, and then we try to copy and paste his notions about that time and place into the 20th century where the government is Masonic, large, centralized, distant, and opposed to subsidiarity, in fact, a government who believes that evil is good and good is evil, a government that promotes abortion, sodomy, unjust wars, and usury as all desirable things, why in the world would we want to give that government the power that the popes tell us is only proper to a family? John, that's my question.
Okay, let me start by uh, when you say the popes can't be, can be wrong. Can the popes be wrong? Popes are wrong all the time. You have to understand how a teaching gets incorporated into the ordinary magisterium of the church. Any papal uh, opinion is just that. Um, it should be received with respect and with faithful uh, adherence insofar uh, as can be. But a single encyclical is never definitive. What is definitive is the history. So the just wage was Leo's opinion. Okay, but the just wage also then gets continued for a long period of time, gets accepted into every Catholic uh, document, encyclical and otherwise, and through a long period of, and it is agreed to by all the bishops. There is no opposition from the bishops. It therefore becomes incorporated into the Catechism of the Catholic Church, um, the Compendium of Social Teaching, and is simply part of the ordinary magisterium. So what didn't get included from Leo was his idea of property as purely an unlimited right in natural law. That had no uh, previous standing in the church, it had no previous standing in the fathers. It had no previous standing in the scholastics. And it has no standing going forward into the rest of the social teaching. Therefore, it never became part of the ordinary magisterium of the church. The just wage and the wider distribution of property did. Uh, so the... Um, um, uh, uh, that's, that's, that answers the question about Leo. I'm very glad to hear that you work for the St. Vincent de Paul Society, as I do. But working for the St. Vincent de Paul Society, there is no way we could replace food stamps, Section 8. We run a pharmacy, but there is no way we could re uh, replace um, the, the VA uh, or uh, Medicare, Medicare and Medicaid. We just couldn't do it. It's totally beyond our resources. So these things have to be an adjunct to systemic changes, not a replacement for them. That simply doesn't happen. And I don't know of any St. Vincent de Paul Society that is able to provide those things. If you know one, please let me know. Uh, so the, um, and as a matter of fact, during this COVID lockdown, and when so many people have uh, lost their work, our workload has about tripled or quadrupled. Um, we are not always able to meet those needs. So um, private charity is essential, but systemic reform has to uh, happen. You're quite right about the mistakes on the war on poverty, okay? Um, well, let us say, uh, uh, you can almost say in the war on poverty, however, there was a little bit too much local control from local ward healers uh, passing out the money in ways that were inappropriate. Uh, so, um, um, you know, I, I don't have any d dispute with what you say about the mistakes of the war on poverty uh, to blame it for the collapse of the black family is, well, that's a narrative that kind of lacks a, um, an empirical base. It's a nice thing to say, but there are lots of studies on this. 
there's lots of empirical evidence and one can look up that empirical evidence um, without too much difficulty. So I think that's an evidentiary question. But in any case, what do we agree on? We agree on that we need a, um, a free market. That's the title of my last book, uh, Toward a Truly Free Market. What we don't agree on is can you have a free market in the face of corporate collectives? I say that's impossible. That's like a square circle. It has never happened and will never happen. And if we want a free market, we need, uh, we need a wider distribution of property. We need what all the popes have called for since Leo. Now, Leo may have been wrong about the natural right of property, but he was absolutely right about the need to distribute it more widely. And no pope has disagreed. Every pope has written on that subject and agreed with the distributists and not the capitalists. Thank you. Jeff? For the Holy Spirit was promised to the successors of Peter, not so that they might, by his revelation, make known some new doctrine, but that by his assistance they might religiously guard and faithfully expound the revelation of the deposit of faith transmitted by the apostles, Pastor Eternus Four. Even De Verbum, the task of authentically interpreting the Word of God, whether written or handed on, has been entrusted exclusively to the living teaching office of the Church, whose authority is exercised in the name of Jesus Christ. This teaching office is not above the Word of God, but serves it teaching only what has been handed on. So when we talk about popes making mistakes and having opinions, the Catholic response is to step back and say, was this part of the deposit of the faith? Has this been taught constantly, continually, and everywhere by the Church? Is this an authentic, organic growth, or is this something new? And the moment we find ourselves saying that this pope was wrong and that pope was wrong, then we know we're not in that area that was promised to us to be guarded by the Holy Spirit for the benefit of our salvation. Now, in conclusion, I, I've got to say that I find distributism, uh, as it's explained by its founders, and uh, even John today, who I think more or less agrees with Arthur Penty's uh, perspective on, on property, please uh, raise your hand and correct me if I'm, I'm wrong about that. But uh, I, I believe it's an explicitly materialistic ideology that completely rejects authentic Catholic calls to evangelism and to solve poverty by converting hearts and minds and encouraging those men who are converted now to give freely of their private property as the disciples did, rather than confiscating their wealth. And you know, John, you're, you're involved with St. Vincent de Paul. Every St. Vincent de Paul society would have more money than it needed if it wasn't crowded out by the government, who's taking in some cases 40 and 50% of the private property and the wages that people have earned. So whether you agree uh, with, with all of those things or not, here's what I, I would say to the distributors. I would say it's best to start with gratitude, to recognize that we live in a time uh, and place, most of us who are watching here, of extraordinary affluence, things that Belloc certainly never could have imagined. As I said earlier in the conversation, the poorest people in America today have free food, free housing, free health care, free education through college. Uh, and sure, they've got air conditioning and heating as well. 
in, in addition to that, that smartphone. Uh, Belloc couldn't have imagined this. He promised not that this would happen, but rather that the workers would be worked into starvation and extinction. None of that happened. So I think the proper starting point for a distributist who really wants to understand the will of God and how it applies in the, our moral and economic decisions to, to recognize uh, that we live in a time of abundance and we should be grateful for that and look to ourselves and our, and our friends and our family and the church to solve these problems and not the Masonic government who believes that good is evil and who believes that you have no right to property, as John has just said. I think it's a Machiavellian construct built on subordinating the rights of workers and property owners, and the Masonic government's got an endless avarice. I would say, Lord, have mercy on us. Pope St. Pius X, pray for us. St. Joseph the Worker, pray for us. Our Lady of the Immaculate Conception, pray for us. Gentlemen, thank you so much for uh, your contributions. John, broadcasting out of the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Jeff, out of the Nashville area. John, giving us a spirited defense of wide ownership of property, system, uh, systemic reform, arguments against greed and avarice. Jeff, with a vigorous, equally vigorous defense of subsidiarity, opposition to central planning, and the miracles of modern wealth and lifestyle. I hope you guys really um, uh, enjoyed this debate. We still have over 100 people watching right now live and a bunch more who are going to watch after the fact. Um, I appreciate everybody tuning into this. If you'd like to see these two face off in a part two, please leave a comment. I think um, I'm walking away from this debate still not fully understanding exactly what distributism is. Maybe that's because I went to a public school in Texas, uh, not University of Dallas where John teaches. Um, but I really do uh, thank you guys so much for, for joining us. Um, I'm going to sign off here. This has been awesome. Please, please, please like the page, subscribe to the YouTube channel, and uh, this video will be available on YouTube tonight. God bless you guys. Thank you. Thank you.